season of The Coaching Cast, your working from home club. Here to keep you company, remind you that you're not alone and that there's many of us outside of your current four walls, all trying to survive and thrive in today's business environment. So regardless of where you are working right now or whatever you do as a career, we've got something for you here at The Coaching Cast. I'm Lisa, founder of Grip Corporate Coaching, personal performance coach, leader, and chief eye roller when it comes to all nonsensical corporate mumbo jumbo, which suffocates rather than advocates. And I'm Susie, sales and business coach at Future You Business Coaching, currently taking on my hardest coaching assignment to date, parenting a two-year-old who doesn't take you kindly to being questioned. In this podcast, we explore all things work-related, matters impacting you at work right now, presenting different topics each episode, which we will discuss with some special guests along the way, sharing ideas, hints and tips for you to take away and try for yourself. We hope you enjoy listening. welcome our third guest to this season of the coaching cast double olympian and head of performance at champion health jack green we will be discussing with jack how to care for yourself and prioritize well-being when striving for high performance learning about his experiences of being an elite athlete and now working to support businesses to achieve well-being for their employees so stay with us and enjoy So before we invite Jack to join us on today's episode, Suze, tell me about your week and your weekend. Hello. Um, nice to, to chat today because I need to share with you, I've got a new sign. I've got a present um, over the last week. That is very so, sweet. Um, so for those of you who aren't watching us on YouTube, we've got a new sign and it says podcast in progress. It's very um, professional. It's very profesh probably more profesh than the actual setup in terms of this podcast um <laughs> you should but, see my sign my sign is a printed sign I can't be bothered to get up off my chair and go and peel it off the mirror that sits outside this door but it literally is a typed one that goes Shh, podcast recording and progress and it's stuck up with like I don't know the bits of a label I've peeled off some sort of piece of equipment in here because I couldn't find any tape and like tore it in half and like stuck it up I've repurposed some sticky label yeah, so that is how professional the setup is here in Cape Town. That Did you also say, shut up, I'm no, recording. It's more <laughs> passive-aggressive than that. It's more passive-aggressive, which is just a... <laughs> which, and that's exactly me all over. Rather than just being, as much as I am direct, sometimes... I pick my battles, I suppose. So okay, rather than that's being fair. Really, and and rather than being really aggressive in text form, so because that sits as like a physical object, then it exists, doesn't it? It's not yeah. like a throwaway. It's not a throwaway comment you've done verbally. But yeah, yeah. I've just gone shh. Podcast <laughs> recording in progress. I know, so hilarious. That is so sweet, it. though. So that was a present. Yeah. So my friend Pippa got me this for my birthday. Um, so yeah, thanks very much, Pippa. Um, unfortunately, Marley the dog can't read it because he <laughs> is the main person who interrupts our recording. Um, but I'm still absolutely hanging outside of the office just because I like it. I think it's really cute. It is very um, sweet. And we like little cute things. That's why we're obviously developing our merch line of cute mugs, cute notepads. Um, (laughs) Any other cuteness you would like us to develop, let us know. I don't Um, think that's generally how people have ever described me, if I'm being perfectly honest. Or anything that's that's related to me. Cute is not one of it. So I'm not sure how I feel about this. I was thinking more like sassy bold merchandise Susie sassy you know absolutely no, not absolutely but yeah for sure so yeah if um, you wonder what we're talking about merchandise wise guys check out I posted actually on our Instagram post on Friday showing some wonderful imagery of both mug and notebook that we have prototypes in, pro- in yeah. progress and Susie I'm sure has got a mug there she'll get that out in a minute yeah always still on my loose women yeah still on my loose, loose women, women mug. 
Um, yeah, I got had my coffee in it this morning. Um, the other day I came home actually, because I've been working away this week. I came home and I think my dad was drinking from it. And I was like, <laughs> I love that dad. You're getting involved in the coaching cast mug. I love well, it. Martin did join us in season two of the coaching cast and he loved it. And, yeah. you know, as far as I was aware, he was one of our most loyal CBBs. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Always listening, always providing feedback. Does he still give you a weekly breakdown? <laughs> Not weekly. He did give me a breakdown a few weeks ago, actually, about um, one of the episodes. I can't remember which one it was. It's in this season. I'll have to look it up. But um, yeah, no, still get some regular feedback in, good. which is good. Keeps it real. Keeps us on our toes, doesn't it, Lisa? Yeah, always we really evolving. appreciate it. It's not like my dad. My dad, love him to death. Robin also joined us in season two of the, of the Coach Girls. He is an obsessive social media stalker and loves to like everything I post. But I'll ask him, <laughs> I'll ask him about a post and he'll always go, oh, no, I don't read it. I don't, I don't watch it. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I don't have time for that, Lisa. I just like it because it helps boost up your profile, doesn't it? And I was like, well... Dad, yes, I appreciate oh, it from that regard. But come on, you've got to digest my content. But apparently he finds watching me too awkward. Makes him feel uncomfortable, oh. apparently. Is I was like, yeah, all right, fair enough. I don't know what that means. But I'll take, I'll, I won't take that too personally. He doesn't want to watch his daughter live on some sort of recording. I suppose it's like, have you ever had that when... Um, actually, I haven't. But I suppose it's that notion of seeing someone you know really well, like sing. Do you ever get that weird feeling no. of awkwardness, like it's a bit icky? Um, I find that generally when people like burst into song, but I don't necessarily need to know them. I just find that with some, you're talking to somebody, you know, like on Pop Idol or like the X Factor when somebody would just be talking and all of a sudden, like in their audition, they would just burst into song really yeah. randomly. Yeah. I would always find that really cringe, personally. <laughs> I um, know, what is that about? Why do we find... But anyway... People, yeah. why does it make us feel so uncomfortable that's definitely what my dad is struggling with he's struggling with the notion of seeing me perform it makes him cringe <laughs> well <laughs> I mean I don't okay. know what it's about but there we anyway go. maybe we should move on and get get chatting to Jack yes to, let's to bring things to back on. bring it back to the purpose of today's episode <laughs> but anyway yeah let's get chatting <laughs> Today, we are honoured to welcome double Olympian Jack Green to the coaching cast. Jack represented Great Britain at the London 2012 and Rio 2016 Olympic Games in the 400 metre hurdles and 4x400m relay events. He became a mental health ambassador for Mind and Young Minds after being diagnosed with depression, bipolar tendencies and anxiety shortly after the 2012 Olympic Games. Retiring at the age of 28 from a career that included bronze medals at the European and World Championships, Jack stepped into the corporate world to lead on well-being at BBC Studios during the COVID-19 pandemic, where he was solely responsible for 30 offices globally and over 5,000 people. Using his philosophy and passion for performance and well-being, Jack continued to support many global organisations with their well-being strategies and other service needs through his consultancy, Ollywell. He is now Head of Performance at Champion Health and continues his involvement with professional sport in track and field through coaching. Champion Health helps employers who want to cover all areas of employer well-being without having to invest in multiple different solutions, bringing it all into one place for both organisations and employees. Organisations struggle to find wellbeing data to tell them the real story about how how healthy their employees are so that they know which areas of wellbeing to target. Champion Health help them to find those areas and then help each employee individually by providing them with wellbeing content and support services that are recommended and tailored to them. Jack states, you have to thrive personally to consistently thrive professionally which leads us really nicely into today's topic. So welcome, Jack, to the coaching cast. Thank you very much. That was quite a long bio, wasn't it? At least my employer will be happy. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of credentials there that we need to cover for sure. Yeah, a hell of a lot 
lot of credentials and, and important I, ones yeah absolutely and uh yes I'm glad that your employer will be thrilled with that actually <laughs> I thought that was very interesting as well because having you know followed you now on, on LinkedIn and connected with you over the past sort of 12 14 months Jack um I found it fascinating learning about not just yourself and Ollywell but then your transition into Champion Health and being introduced to a, a whole organization which I knew nothing about um and I found that really really beneficial so I thought we must include it in the introduction for for our listeners can't cut that out so um I know um the the part of your your biography so far um that really stands out is your time as an Olympian which you know it's it's such an incredible part of your story in so many different ways. And I know we're going to be talking about that in terms of where you are today. Um, but talk to us a bit about that experience of being an, an elite professional athlete. Yeah, so it was always my dream. So from the age of seven, I was writing stories about going to the Olympic Games and beating Maurice Green, who, who if you don't know athletics, he was bolt before bolt, world record holder in 100 metres. And I wanted to to beat him. He was my hero. I wanted to beat him and writing stories in English about that. And very fortunate that it became my job. And, you know, a lot of hard work went in, but I was also very fortunate that I'm six foot four and I clearly have some ability for running around and and jumping things. uh, (laughs) I had no idea that's how tall you were, because I always see you in this capacity, (laughs) which is sitting down and having a conversation over Zoom. So you're six foot four, flipping neck. I couldn't afford the uh, the standing desk for that tool, so uh, <laughs> they're a bit more expensive, I think. But um, yeah, I was very fortunate that then I spent 10 years as a professional athlete. So I went professional at 18, uh, went to my first world championships at 19, first Olympics at 20, where I finished fourth. And, and yeah, and obviously there's a lot more to that story. But quite frankly, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have done what was my dream as a kid, which there aren't many people in the world that that can say that and that's not through any fault of their own but I'm mm. very fortunate to have had that opportunity. But I mean you talk a lot about being fortunate and I know there is an element of that but clearly the as you mentioned the hard work that goes into being an elite athlete you know that's a if, if that's a humongous part of actually then you you reaching that level and especially the level of being an Olympian and representing your country and being able to compete with the best in the entire world. Um, and and so I think you're being very humble there to talk about how you know, you're know you fortunate because actually you're taking away, I'm sure, the amount of work that actually went into it. And, and what was that like, the, the work level to get there? Absolutely uh, brutal, quite <laughs> frankly. I did a session. I don't train that much. Any, I, I need to train it a bit more, but with the life moving on and so on. And and I've got a lot of training in the bank. I've managed to neglect my training without it particularly affecting my health just because I trained for so long. And I did a session yesterday and I, I did something quite hard and I still did it well, but I finished it. And I was like, how did I do this every single <laughs> day? And it was only like a part of what I used to do. Um, it was barbaric, but that was what was in my event. As a 400 meter hurdler, it's known as the man killer um is its nickname and it's known as the hardest uh, track and field event possible and one of the, the worst sports essentially to do um, and that's because the training requires so much of you so yeah I'm not sure how I, I did it for so long um, mm. it also becomes the norm right we we're very good at adapting and adjusting and and I also didn't know any different because I went professional from a kid I never had any other job I never had any other dream or ambition so that's just what was required but I, I do a lot of executive coaching myself and a lot of mentoring and coaching with my athletes and there's a lot of incredibly physically talented people in the world or, or people with with ability but there's a real cost to being one of the best and that's the difference is people aren't prepared to pay that price and the consequences that come of it because as, as we'll talk about it had mm-hmm. a, a big cost on my own my life outside of running around and and my health so at the time that I was willing to pay but mm-hmm. isn't a healthy thing to do so I think that's that's the real takeaway from it is it's absolutely brutal and there aren't many people that are willing to pay that that price because it's not a nice price. Mm. And can you talk to us a bit about when you say the price? What what is the price that was paid? Because clearly there's the the time commitment um, 
which is, is which is grueling in itself and how much time is taken away from you know well everything else it's your whole life you know that time my understanding is, is very much consumed by the routine and the commitment to the to the training but what what else is is at cost would you say well firstly it's a lifestyle so it's not just here's your your hour or two at the track and off you go go and enjoy yourself um it's a lifestyle so to the point i used to live in florida at one point obviously it's very hot there i was only allowed out in the sun for a certain amount of time a day how many steps you're doing there's always the thought of the next day or the next championships that means that you have to be very controlled and disciplined in everything you do from what you're eating to how often you're sleeping and various things like that so there's a lifestyle element so then you lose that social piece as well because you're not going out and doing things like normal people you're also mm. on a different timeline to everyone else because i would train in the morning and then i'm done for the rest of the day now my friends who aren't in sport work till five or whatever and, and it's very lonely uh, existence quite frankly yeah. um and then in the summer you're you're here there and everywhere traveling around which sounds great but i've been to many places in the world but i have no idea what they're like i know what the track and the hotel's like you make no money pretty much so my first job uh, real job i was making probably six times as much as i made as an athlete um and yeah as an athlete I was training twice a day and trying and I was top 10 in the world and a world and uh European medalists and mm. yeah you're you're getting by on minimum wage and and so on whilst demanding this this huge expectation and then training I was throwing up three times a week on average and you know crawling off the track um and yeah that's that intensity is hard to sustain Mm. Uh, I physically am incredibly robust no idea why just how I am I can take a lot of work and a lot of pain um to the point that that mentally it was what, what essentially broke on me was was the mental side because I couldn't sustain the intensity of almost living in fear all the time because it was always what was demanded of you was just more than you ever had mm. and so to build on that then and that that point you know, when did you realise that something was just not right? You know, how did it present itself to you and, and what action did you take from there? Yeah, so I, I was very successful very quickly. So at the age of 18, I went professional. I went from 105th in the world to 16th within one season, became the youngest wow. ever winner of the European under-23s, went to World Championships. One year out from London 2012, and I'm 19, turning 20 at this point. And before the Olympic Games, I went from 16th in the world to 6th. Um, and it was kind of like, cool, this is easy. Obviously, I worked incredibly hard, but everyone I'm training with, I'm training with current world champion and various other people. Everyone went to the Olympics in my group. We're all training hard. I'm not doing anything they wouldn't do or other superstar athletes wouldn't do, but it was coming quite easily. So... Life was pretty easy at that point, and I just thought everything was going to fall into my lap. Um, and then I finished fourth at the Olympics. I also fell in the hurdles in those Olympics. I finished fourth in the relay. We missed a medal by 0.13 of a second, so very close. And it was after that that um, things, it was almost like my, my trigger moment as such. It was that failure, which I saw as a failure at the time. It, it shouldn't have been. I was top 10 in the world in 20, finished fourth at the Olympics. What an amazing thing. But for me, that was a failure. And that just really accelerated um, my my poor mental health, which I was then within six months to a year diagnosed with depression, bipolar tendencies, anxiety, considered a threat to my own life and, and up in the priority in Birmingham. So um, and at that point, I was voted the most talented sports person of a generation in Britain. And yet I was struggling with that. And now with a greater awareness and understanding of mental health. I can definitely tell you I, I've always struggled with anxiety in particular, especially as a, as a kid, um, and this fear of failure. And that insecurity and that fear was actually what made me incredibly successful very quickly, but it wasn't something that's sustainable because it was too intense and it was, yeah, no one can live in fear for a long time. No. Yeah. that I mean, that concept of that you talk about there, failure, that word failure, because when you tell that story, somebody who you know, doesn't know you very well, which I don't, listening to you there, I'm thinking, wow, like these are amazing achievements. You are literally at the height of your professional success. 
that is absolutely amazing and not taking away from those achievements. But inside from that story, you obviously were really struggling with your with your mental health. And you talk a bit about, you know, the the failures that you kind of um, saw from that situation. And that must have been so challenging with that juxtaposition of internally struggling. But then from an external perspective, people like me hearing your story being like, wow, you know, that's such amazing achievement. Yeah, well, there's the piece of here of, of being male, being a sports person, being mm-hmm. deemed to be successful. They all made things worse for me because all those things suggest that you shouldn't struggle with mental health or you shouldn't struggle with anything, quite frankly. And, and especially when my journey looked quite quick and quite easy, uh, even more so. It was almost like, you know, to the manner born as such. And, oh, well, you're just destined to be this or that. And that then just put more emphasis on this fact that I shouldn't Mm. be struggling and that I should be successful and I should in fact not be fourth I should be first Mm. so yeah that really made made things worse and obviously that's why I do a lot of public speaking uh, and and work with the charities I work with and and work with in well-being because being male being a sports person I'm I'm only 30 as well so still young and um, I'm able to communicate with a big group of people who uh, are definitely at risk which is you know men under the age of 35 all men but men under yeah. the age of 35 in particular um which I'm in that bracket and and hopefully through my 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 talks and through doing podcasts like this it just gives people permission or an understanding or greater awareness that mental health affects us all we're all just human beings and yeah that's kind of the mission behind uh, a lot of this talking but hopefully that's the lessons people do take from from my experiences because I was one of those could have easily been one of those statistics at at one Mm. point yeah and I know you were recently featured as well on the um inside out leaderboard with one of our other um podcast guests which we've had on in in our last is our last season or the season oh season two I think season Season two two, Rob Stevenson Mm. um and you were featured on the inside out leaderboard so congratulations for that because that is also an amazing achievement in terms of just the work you are doing about raising the awareness and breaking the stigma no I really appreciate that and and yeah Rob's doing some amazing work and there's some amazing people within well-being quite frankly uh well-being we know how important it is especially now since Covid there's a greater awareness but Mm um well-being's been a little bit soft and a little bit fluffy um yeah. and I know that's the saying everyone says but that's because it has been um and now it's becoming that performance measure that I'm sure we'll talk about and what I'm very passionate about which is the link between well-being and performance so amazing people doing some amazing work and yeah it's it's cool to be one of those uh considered one of those doing that great work yeah absolutely and um, for sharing your story so honestly as well Jack because I think part of the problem um, and I think you've already pointed out is the fact that actually these types of conversations have just historically never been had and not had often or consistently enough to enable people to raise their own awareness of how they're feeling and, and the fact that how they're feeling potentially isn't right and can be resolved can be worked through that there is solutions out there are solutions out there and as much as when it feels the complete opposite is bleak when you feel trapped and completely lost and like there's no way out but that's not the case um and that there are many people actually out there who are potentially even feeling exactly the same but who equally can can help support because at that time in your career when when this was happening to you what what support was available to you to to deal with it and address it um so i was funded at the time so i was i was funded by the governing body <clears throat> and I got six weeks of one session a week. That was it. There we go. There's your support um, and lack of hmm. uh, that. I'm not sure how much that has changed, but um, it needs to. Hmm. So, because as I said, and it's something that the biggest, one of the biggest learnings for me was understanding I was just a human being. Um, and hmm. I think we need to understand that about all the people we we look up to or whatever it might be put on a pedestal, just a human being that does something well. And that means we have a duty of care towards them because the only difference between me and someone else is I ran incredibly fast and that's about it. Not faster than, <laughs> than everyone, unfortunately. Just like, there was a few I didn't run uh, faster than, but that's the, the, you know, I have a lot of skills. I have a lot of traits that are, are, lend very well to to sport and and what I did but the 
grand scheme of it, it's like just ran fast. Just a human being did something well. And, and there are billions of people, if not everyone, who is a human being that does something well. Hmm. It just might not be on a stage, right? That's that's the difference. I was just yeah. fortunate enough that my abilities put me on a stage that that's revered as such. But I'm just a human being. So there's a real a duty of care that we need to have for people that's beyond when they're in the spotlight, wherever it might be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, that area, I think, is is actually the one that I often think about um, and, you know, question actually in my own mind, like how would I handle that? Which is, you know, the, the fact that you are visible to so many people and, you know, so many strangers who are all staring, watching you. And I know with the 2012 games, especially because it was a home game, you know, the level of pressure there, and that was your first one, and you were so young. Do you say you were 19, turning 20 in the 2012? Yeah, 20, yeah. 20, 20 at 2012, yeah. You know, I remember that game. I lived in London, and the whole country was just obsessed mm. with those games, yeah. and they were amazing. I mean, I spent three weeks crying. Where I think it was like <laughs> two weeks of the Olympics and then all the, you know, the following Paralympics because I just, you know, found watching people striving and uh, working so hard to achieve and then achieving their their goals and their dreams just yeah so incredibly moving so I think I spent the whole time crying in with you know sheer joy um but I mean for you how did you manage that level of pressure at that time I didn't (laughs) quite frankly I didn't um and especially coming from track and field um you go from in my case my mum and my nan being in the crowd and pretty much no one else to oh there's eighty thousand people and, and millions watching at home yeah, and God. Yeah. I, their words will never do justice what that stadium was like mm. uh, I remember saying to wheel room you have eight people in a in a flat as such when you're in the Olympics and all your teammates and I remember being one of the first to go into the stadium for my race compared to the others and coming back and just saying to them you are not ready for that and then being like, oh, we came and watched. We, we've been in the stadium. And I said, it's different. And as soon as they went in, they came back just saying that is just, yeah. Um, they, they couldn't comprehend what it was like. Still, I will never do it justice. And I will never get that experience again um, mm. either. And, and I didn't appreciate it because I was just full of fear. I was worried about consequences and so on. And I just had no, no tools, to be honest. I was 20 years old. Um, I'd been incredibly successful and any time I hadn't been I'd ended up being successful through my insecurity driving this this desire and this ability to outwork and just achieve because I had to and so I'd never actually failed so I had no tools to deal with that Mm. and then put a, a young young person with a lack of emotional intelligence and a lack of experience into an environment like that where they then deem themselves a failure with the result yeah, it's, it's no surprise that that was my trigger, really, that, mm. that kind of set off the, the official journey of mental health. But as I said, I definitely struggled when I was young, but success had always papered over the cracks of, mm. oh, well, mm. you know, this kid who I come from a single parent family down in East Kent, South Kent, where not much happens. And yet I was one of the best in the world as a kid at what I was doing. And oh, so he must be fine because he's achieving when actually I, I was I was never particularly well and I was always struggling with certain things. Had Mm. I failed more as a kid, had that been addressed, who knows what 2012 would have been like? Because if I had the mindset I have now, which still isn't 100% all the time because I always get things wrong and I'm much better at telling other people and I still struggle with a fear of failure and various things at times. But if I had a lot of the skills I have now, who knows? I I might not have, have gone and won medals and things within that Olympics, but I'd have come out of it pretty well and, and then had a nice you know, a nice treadmill that would accelerate me through my career rather than two years after being voted the most talented athlete of a generation, I, I was no longer competing So for, mm. for two whole years, whereas really that should have been a springboard onto fantastic things. Mm. It's interesting what you say there, that, and that really resonates with me because I am a mum, I've got a young child who, who is a boy, and I know a lot of our CBBs, our listeners, are, are mums as well. And interesting what you say there about um, the kind of need to teach that future generation some of those skills to be able to reframe failure 
or um you know experience it and then come out of it with perhaps a different view and a different mindset and I think that's something that absolutely um the way our kind of society is constructed we haven't necessarily done in the past certainly when I was growing up and I was saying I certainly wasn't an elite sporting professional <laughs> that's for sure um but you know it's something that even I still experienced in my childhood and there was definitely a gap there and I think a acknowledging that and thinking about how we now address that for the future generation and the work that obviously you're now doing is really really critical in terms of a learning point in itself yeah I think there's some learnings from workplace well-being for this as well in terms of the first thing that you do within an organization is you get your leaders and your managers on board and you want them to role model and and give permission to others around certain actions and certain behaviors so your act your actions, your act, your behaviours tell a story. Is it the story you want to be telling and want other people to be to be following in? As a parent, that's no different to mm. your children. It's no different to me with the mm. athletes I work with or the people I'm speaking to, people I manage at work or just with my friends and family. What's the story that I'm telling? And is that a positive one that is actually helping other people? I we, we, we lack a bit of awareness within the world, um, mm. self-awareness and... and we don't understand the importance of our actions and behaviours. And then that leads into communication as well. So what's the language that we're using? We know how important that is. Um, so look at failure. Failure is just learning, right? It's just an opportunity for me to go, oh, what did I do wrong? Um, it's not the end of the world. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a few things that I think is, is really important to think about. Won't always get them right. But, yeah, if we can start being more conscious around the role modelling that we we are doing that will will help us go a long way because that's why I speak out in the hope that other people if I as a kid if I had an athlete of of my status come into my school and start talking about athletics and then saying you know what I really struggle at times I'd be like oh wow I'm allowed to struggle because that's that's a that's a guy I look up to who struggles so that means I'm allowed to that's okay Mm. he said it's okay but I think, yeah, that this whole notion around failure, I find so fascinating because I very much have struggled with it as well to the point where, you know, it does take conscious effort at times to say, just go for it, Lisa. What's the worst thing that's going to happen, really? Think about what you're going to learn from it. And, and I have to admit, that lesson that I've learned over the years, both I would say pre-coaching, but I think it's definitely strengthened through all my coaching training and qualifications has really helped me to manage my mindset around taking risks, taking challenges, you know, going for opportunities, putting myself out there and being more vulnerable. I do think focusing always on the sense of if I fail or if I make a mistake or if I get it wrong because sometimes I find that even the word fail or failure just a bit too heavy like I find that harder to sometimes digest as a as a, as a term and I, it's interesting you talk about language because I totally agree the language we use how we talk to ourselves how we talk to others and represent ourselves I think is so powerful in terms of its its influence um but as long as I can focus on if I get it wrong I just I'll focus on the learning. It actually helps me so much because actually I immediately have given myself one to get it wrong and that to just be okay. So the pressure seems to be less in the and I find that quite freeing because I think once we take the pressure off ourselves, that's when we really really achieve and thrive. Um, but also it, it kind of gives me permission then to forgive myself if it does go wrong, which is I find really again very helpful. Um, but this is all things that I've learned very much, I would say, in my 30s. You know, I'm, I'm at 38. I'm eight years older than you, Jack, <laughs> painfully, like to say that, but it's true. Um, but I've only learned that in that, that later part of my life. I think I struggled with that whole concept hugely during my teenage years because I was competitive and wanted to do well in all my education and, you know, wanted to pass everything and had never failed an exam ever. And, you know, that even that notion of failing an exam has has felt very terrifying. Um, And then I think I struggled with it through my 20s in my early career years, but it was never something that was really talked about. And I think that is definitely what's got to change, I think. Yeah, and I 
teenage years and 20s are incredibly hard there's so yeah. much discovery and learning at that point yet mm. there's still that expectation that you should be successful and achieve and so on yes absolutely. Uh, particularly being British I, I feel there's there's an expectation there though culturally there'll be the, the different expectations here there and everywhere but I feel there's there's this whole thing that you must be successful and you must be successful quick you can't shout about it you can't fail you can't all of that but I think a big thing to to think about here is the fact that we're all a star in our own show and that's actually a real big problem because we're the main character we only look at our own show and therefore when the main character fails it's a big thing but in the grand scheme of things no one cares Let's be honest, there aren't many things that we do <laughs> that make any difference. Mm. But it's us that's hurt by it. So there's this, this huge thing of understanding who and what is important, mm. um, understanding those people that you value, you love and you trust, that you can be vulnerable with, and those people you can relate with who also are part of that group. And anyone outside of that doesn't matter. Their opinions are their opinions. It's their business. And I think a lot of us will, and, and this is society that built this up and, and just how we are is we always worry about that external uh, expectation, pressure, validation, mm. their opinion, when actually it means nothing. And that's a really hard thing to learn and develop and, and move forward with. But I think it's really crucial in understanding that fear of failure piece is mm. where it comes from. And, and let's be honest, for most of us, it's that external element to it that that fuels the fire as such. Mm. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I can relate to that massively. And it really annoys me. I'm not going to lie. It's one of my traits that I just get wound up about. I'd love to change that. But I have an external reference for recognition and validation. And it's not it's not completely external. It's a big part of it is how I feel about myself, but it is a lot stronger than I would like. So it's a constant trying to work on it. So talking then about your experience then and and how that experience and has evolved to now and where you are now. So we we mentioned about the transition you've gone on from moving from an elite full-time professional athlete and Olympian to your own consultancy, Ollywell, and now working as head of performance for Champion Health. So in that time and, and through the different organisations you've worked with and supported and for, what, what do you believe the challenges are for, for businesses to really support well-being for their employees while achieving this sort of like this aspiration of high performance and getting that balance right? Uh, it's building the bridge that's the biggest issue. So defining what well-being is and where its connection with performance is, I think it's pretty simple, but I'm, I'm not in charge of organisations' well-being. So I, I used to be in charge of one, but um, I'm not in charge of organisations and what they do. I'll just support it. But for me, you have to thrive personally, as you said, to then thrive professionally. So therefore, I'm a human being 24 hours a day. I'm an employee for... I don't even know how many hours I work because it's flexible and I just do what I do, but um, X amount of hours, um, which is a lot less than the 24 of me being human being. So why would I focus solely on the employee? It's like when I was an athlete. I'm an athlete for two hours a day. I'm a human being for 24. Mm. That gives me 22 hours where I need to prioritise the human being and support that human being, rest, recover, put everything in place so that those two hours are fantastic because those are my intense two hours. The rest is prioritising the human being. We don't do that. Mm. You look at it in sport, we'll employ anyone and everyone to help you to be the best athlete you can be, and then we'll just leave you to it the rest of the time. It's no different with, with the workplace, right? Everything's about the employee. How do we help the employee? We never really go, well, how do I help the human being? So that's how do I prioritize well-being of a human being so that the well-being of the employee and the productivity and the performance goes through the roof? Mm. That for me is, is where we need to start. So it's taking well-being away from that soft, fluffy uh, fruit bowls and yoga, which are, are actually an important part of well-being, but they're not well-being itself. Mm. The well-being is... I think it's different for everyone in, in how you want to define it. I find it a really hard thing to define, yet I've been a head of wellbeing globally and, and work for a wellbeing company. I still think it's a hard thing to really nail down, but there's a, an element of authenticity, being comfortable in yourself and, and rest and recovery and all these things. And it's just 
getting that right, that understanding that well-being and how you thrive as a human being is essential to you doing your job and doing it to the best of your ability. Mm. At the moment, we, we it's two different things. Performance is something we expect. Well-being is something we expect others to do and just it happens and well, well-being is well-being. Whereas performance, it's just an expectation that it must be done. That needs to change. Mm. It needs to be how do we help people do it? Yeah, and I, I've, I've never heard it spoken about like that before. And yet what you say makes so much sense. I mean, I've always found well-being in companies is just a massive tick box exercise and it's very generic. So I think actually what I find very interesting about Champion is that piece around tailoring to an individual because, you know, these are the sort of conversations we had with Rob when we spoke to him about form score in one of the previous seasons. You know, his view very much was it's not a one size fits all. I can't answer it simply to suit everyone because it's not about fitting in you know you're not going to be able to create an approach that suits the many if you're genuinely really wanting to care about people it's got to be on an individual basis um and I mean that is a challenge I can you know I think about that from the perspective of when I worked in corporate organizations and being a senior leader you know that is a hard concept to get your head around you know what what's your sort of what's the approach that you take with companies with champion and and how do you tackle that issue obviously champion is a well-being platform we call it netflix of well-being so you do an assessment that then shapes that personalization <clears throat> the beauty of that is the individual then has that awareness that education but that accountability for themselves if you ask a senior leader of a, a company that's got thousands of people well i think you need to look after everyone individually it's not going to happen they don't have the time it's not no. their job that's where the support and the culture has to shape that that part of the, that individualization, that personalization, is about your culture and the support and services so that people have the route to access what they need rather than you giving them it or having to identify it. Yeah. That's a big piece for me mm. because it's not possible to look after. I've got, I looked after four athletes at one time and that's hard enough trying to do individually for all of them. They all need different communication. They all need a different training program. They all respond to different things. And one has a higher work pass than the other, blah, 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 different events or even the same event. They're all different. So my sports learnings really help this and shape this. It's just my job. How I saw it when I was head of wellbeing at BBC was my job was I had to lead the horse to water. So I had to be able to communicate and signpost and have everything there to lead the horse to water, to show you what is available. My responsibility is also the water, which is the services, the support, the culture. Not my responsibility to make you drink. Not my problem. That's not my job. That's mm. the individual's job. So my job is to have everything communicated and so on and have everything in place. The rest is up to an individual. Uh, and that's then how I look at that personalization is, do you have the things in place for people to access what they need? Because what I will need will be different to what both of you will need. Mm. Yeah, and I, and I think so. actually that's what strengthens people's um, capability to care for their well-being, which is being aware that, you know, at the end of the day, we are all accountable for ourselves and we need to take responsibility for and that and that's what will make us better. That will make us stronger because we're much more self-reliant then. Um, and we're not reliant on others, which I personally think is very unhealthy. So I think it does truly help with that whole like resilience piece, which is recognizing resilience isn't about just beasting yourself and putting up with it because you're so stoic and stoic. It's actually recognizing, no, being resilient is knowing what you need, how you look after yourself, how do you strengthen yourself inside out? How do you set boundaries? Do you know what you're going to say no to? Because that helps you to be resilient because you're stronger and, and healthier for it. Um, and, you know, so I definitely, I definitely think that notion of giving people a choice and encouraging them to take, make those choices for themselves and then be responsible for it is, is really, really important. I think choices, it's, it's about empowering people, right? Yeah. Because if you're doing it for me, you're not going to do it for long or at all. Yeah. If you're doing it for you, 
there, there, there comes the change, right? Because mm. um, it's not about me as a well-being lead or, or someone within well It's not about me. It's about an individual doing it for them or whatever their purpose is and their why is, right? Um, mm. Be it their family or their health reasons, whatever it is, but whatever they need to do for them, not about for me. So, and that's where the empowerment, that choice, it's more likely to then become a positive change, a habit, because there's a real fire to do it rather than someone told me. Let's be honest, someone tells you to do something, you don't do it anyway. So no matter how good it is. <laughs> no, I'm less likely not. to do it. That's yeah. for sure. Someone tells me to do it. And um, I'm assuming they, you know, that very logical and absolutely sensible approach around leading people to choices and for them to then make the choice around what the best um kind of options are to support their own personal well-being is also applicable if you um work in a smaller organization as well because I know a lot of our listeners either work for themselves or have um their own business and they perhaps have a, a smaller team than in a large-scale organization so am I right in assuming those principles absolutely still apply in that context as well yeah most definitely and I think and Hopefully everyone has good environments and cultures and open and people are able to talk, but not everyone's like that. And that's fine because some people aren't ready. But it's the point of that horse and water piece is when yeah. someone gets to crisis, they need to know where to go. Yeah, That's where we lose people mm. is they feel there's, there's nowhere to turn. We haven't communicated it properly. We don't have the support and the culture. We don't have the services. So even as a small organization or even for yourself, do you have that support available that if you do get to burnout, crisis, whatever it be extreme, that you know where to go or where to turn? So, you know, if you had financial issues, it gets to crisis point. But as a well-being lead or someone responsible for others, if I haven't communicated where you can go yeah. when you have financial, or I haven't got those services in place, I haven't got that support in place, then I'm going to have someone that's going to be in a really difficult position because I've got nothing. Mm. And this is where well-being is being incredibly reactive as well, where it's like, oh, well, this person really needed financial help. So what we've learned now is to bring in financial help or whatever it might be. It can be anything, right? Why did you have to have some a crisis happen for you to change this? Mm-hmm. It's a huge thing with, uh, I've always said this within, within sport, and we've lost a lot of people in, in sport to suicide, and it shouldn't get to that point for us to do something about it. Mm. Let's be honest, it should... You know, and, and unfortunately, we will lose people regardless because humans are very complicated beings and so on. But can we reduce that by have every, having everything available, the support, the services, communicating it properly, showing that love and that vulnerability, which is not a weakness um, at all? Can we reduce that crisis by having everything available already, investing yeah. in it? Unfortunately, we've been incredibly reactive in everything that we do so far when it comes to well-being. We're not reactive with performance at all. Performance, yeah. we put everything yeah. in place to make sure things happen. Yet with yeah. well-being, which is a fundamental foundation, in my opinion, we're reactive of, well, we've now experienced this, so we'll do something about it. Why well, You can predict that. You can predict that people will struggle at some point and will need support. Mm-hmm. So let's put it in place. So let's help people because they'll not even get to that point therefore productivity and performance will stay higher because people aren't getting to crisis Mm. and then just the human piece and the duty of care is we don't have people struggling which is fantastic Mm. absolutely what what do you think is getting in the way of organizations doing this because like when you articulate it jack it just sounds so clear and obvious like a complete no-brainer to be quite honest i think there's a lot of stigma still around mental health and well-being but remember the person who's i.e me who's speaking is someone who's performance who's male who's successful um in a high performance environment is considered elite and a male so it's very i'm talking to the people that tend to get in the way (laughs) but i'm one of those that would normally get in the way of just being old school and that generation or Mm -hmm. i fine get on with it which i was i was one of those Mm -hmm. um so then when you have one of that club then preaching it from the other side, I feel it has a bit more impact typically um, than, let's be honest, HR um, and, and well-being has been dominated by middle-aged females who are very caring and passionate and do amazing things for well-being. So it's almost expected. Mm. So it doesn't have the same impact 
because it's listening to the same people that you just, yeah. well, of course, you, you care about well-being, your HR and your female and whatever. So when you have someone else that comes in from a different the club that is almost anti-well-being, it then has the impact. But in terms of it changing is I think there's a real there's a real difficulty in understanding the responsibility of an organisation. And I think it's unique to every organisation and you have to draw back the boundaries and the line of where well-being almost starts and ends from a organisational corporate point of view because you are not responsible for someone 24-7. You can give them support, but it's not your job to, to look after them outside work. It's your job to give them tools and support them, I think, but um, it's not your job to actually look after them. And I think there's a real worry about professionalism at the moment. That opening the gate will, um, the gate to well-being will end up with this environment that's very soft, very laid back, very easy, doesn't mean performance. That Oh, if someone needs a day, we'll just give them a day off. And, oh, well, it's all just nothing happens when it's well-being because it's nice. Well-being isn't nice. Well-being is performance. Mm. Professionalism is something that is a really interesting one that you're finding within organisations at the moment that have gone for that softer culture where they're supporting people and some people take advantage of it, like everyone. The worst thing I ever hear is when you propose a, a strategy or a policy and people go, oh, well, someone will, will abuse that so we won't do it. What about the 99% of people that don't abuse it? And also if that 1% do, you'll soon get rid of them because you can identify them. And sometimes the best thing for well-being is to move people on and yeah. change your environment. Uh, well, yeah, they're not happy, yeah. you're not happy. Anyway, um, yeah. but the big piece around professionalism needs to be defined. What is professionalism? So professionalism, for me, I think a lot of people have, have ended up thinking that corporations are very nice and workplace should be super nice, but professionalism hasn't changed in terms of I still have an expectation of performance. That's still part of well-being. Mm. But what I my expectation is that you will put in the effort. The performance, the results might not come that month, that week, that quarter, that year, just because life is life and business is business. But I still have an expectation that if I support you, and put the support in place, I still expect you to put the effort in. Mm. Whereas I think a lot of people and in, in the, the, the older generations in particular within management at the moment, the male and very masculine dominated environments think that professionalism is will just leave if you're nice to people, that they don't go well together, which they do. Because yeah. if someone's nice to me, I feel uh, empowered, I feel valued. So I'm more likely to be loyal and work hard for them because they're going above and beyond to support. Oh, wow, they care about me. So guess what? I'm going to do more. Yeah. <laughs> I actually want to be here and I value them. So, yeah, I think there's a worry around what professionalism seems to be something that's coming up a lot. Apologies, you can hear the dog. To be honest, I wasn't sure whether that was your dog, Jack, or Marley, Susie's dog, because Marley <laughs> often joins us on the coaching yeah, class as well. Um, so don't worry, we're dog friendly. My dog's not hearing with me in South Africa, so it's fine. Um, anyway, I digress. I think, though, what, what you said there, I mean, it resonates with me so much because I've always been someone who's worked in very male dominated organizations with um, where, where, where my passion has been people and where, because I'm female and I'm into people. And then I became a qualified coach. I could even, most of the time I could just feel the eye rolls from my male colleagues before I'd even seen them, you know, and, and I definitely hated that kind of notion. Well, of course that you're into people and, you know, um, you're exploring how they're feeling, you know, because you're a woman. And and it, it what it did use a great heavily. And, you know, at times it definitely meant that I was changing how I was behaving to better suit their the, them and like their perception of what I should be as a, a female leader, which obviously jarred and was, you know, unsustainable because it just wasn't who I was. Um, and I and I think that is absolutely what's got to change around well-being is that whole connection incorrectly with it being soft fluffy nice you know that word nice is irritating and non-descriptive and, and doesn't really give you much on purpose because it's just four little letters and it's I don't you know it's interesting when you say I'll do more for um you know people when I'm cared for and I think it's trying to help individuals understand what that actually means like you can care for someone and still set boundaries set expectations have difficult conversations because actually 
you're if you're challenging them appropriately you are being nice to them because you're helping them to learn and understand and to grow and it's not just about giving everybody exactly what they want and you know and being you know not ever having a, a harsh word said or I think it's trying to break even the old stereotype of all of that notion as well it's so true you know just because we're saying you should we should put some investment time finances thinking behind you know a, a different type of um, agenda for people supporting their well-being to make them um you know, more rounded, better um, human beings, as you've said, Jack, that will ultimately, you know, enhance their performance. I loved what you said before. You said well-being is performance. Yeah. And it's absolutely spot on. You know, and I probably never actually thought about it in that way before, but it's exactly the same in terms of personal development as well. You know, personal development is performance. It's all kind of links, you know, together very nicely. But um, yeah, it's so interesting how some of these kind of more archaic views are definitely still present for sure. I think there's also what made me think of something there was around everyone's talking now around corporate social responsibility, right? Yeah. The best thing you can do for corporate social responsibility is look after your people because they go out in society and are better people and happier and add more and just better. Yeah. So you don't, it's do all the rest. Of course you do. Fantastic. Support whatever it might be. But the best thing you can do is just look after your people, because if you you employ 10, 50, 100, thousands of people, they then will have a ripple effect on everyone around them. We're just improving society by improving the people that we are responsible for. Love it. I love it. So to bring our, this conversation to a form of conclusion, what, what would your, if we say like your top three tips be for I want to focus this in on an individual, if that's okay, like, because as, as we said, I think that's relevant then to all of our CBBs who are listening. Um, but what would your top three tips be for individuals who are striving for high performance and at the same time being conscious about well-being and your, and your own, like, you know, caring for yourself? First thing, um, I'm almost known as being Mr. Effort. I preach about effort so much because it will literally save my life and, and made me more consistent and just a better performer. And that was the fact that because I'm a human being, I might not be 100% every single day. I might have uh, struggled finances, sleep, my mental health might be poor, there might be some relationship issues. I've only got 60% in the tank. So all I can do on any given day with 60% of the tank is give 100% of that 60 that then leads to consistency. We're not burning out. I'm giving all that I can. And that's all I ever ask of people. Mm. Give me the effort. The rest is the rest, whatever, because I know you're trying. That's why I think everyone is a high performer in mm. some degree, because if you're trying to be the best parent, you can be the best friend, you can be the best anything. You are trying and you are putting the effort in. Therefore, you are a performer. Mm. Um, so effort is my number one. It understands your human at least consistency i learned that from working with the best athletes that have ever lived world record holders who weren't superstars every day but what they were fantastic at was turning up showing up giving it what everything they had in the tank which was sometimes not great but they still turned up and did it so efforts number one i think what i said about that role modeling that that actions and behaviors because as much as that's going to influence the people around you Influencing the people around you and the environment around you helps you. Because if you're in a good environment, that only helps, which is why at Champion Health, we do all the data for the organisation, anonymous data for the organisation. Because if I can help the individual build the awareness and education and I can help the organisation with that awareness too, it's so much more likely to be successful because we're changing the environment and the individual. Brilliant. If you change one without the other, it's going to be hard work. Mm. It'll always be something we're pushing against. And then the final piece... Um, there's all standard things we can talk about that we said, fear of failure and, and changing how that, that looks. But for, for me, it was another thing I said, which is find out who and what's important to you. So it's a Brené Brown around circles, right? Yeah. Find your circles. So people that you connect with, you relate with for whatever reason, they don't have to have experienced the same things of you, as you, but you just relate with them and, and you experience, you, you see things in the same way. Um, and then your friends and family, those people close to you, they're the people that are important. Everyone else, their, their opinion, their business, not yours at all. Just 
let that be as best you can mm. uh, and focus on who and what matters. But for an example, I, I only have LinkedIn for social media because I have to have it for work, but I deleted everything else that I had because it was putting too much emphasis on other people and things that weren't important rather than focusing on myself, the people that matter and the people that I love. Um, so, yeah. That's great. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Jack. So we've got one final question to kind of conclude our conversation with you today. It's actually from one of our listeners who sent a question in because we said we were talking to you today uh, and they've got the following question. So when you're striving for peak performance, how can you limit the impact of day to day issues or personal issues taking away your focus? I think the first part is accepting that that might happen, quite frankly. Um, but I always have cues, right? So my cues, they could be as simple as when I put on my trainers. This is this is my work time in terms of sport and performance. Put on these shoes. I'm going to work. I'm going to work. I can deal with the rest later. This is my time to do this. So giving myself those physical cues. And then when I finished, it can be whatever it was. So after a race, I love a whiskey, right? And I wasn't really, I I was very strict when I was young and wouldn't do anything. But I realized that one whiskey wasn't going to destroy my whole career. And actually the enjoyment of it probably added to my career. So at the end of a race, I'd have one whiskey and that was my switch off. So I created these switches that allowed me just to enter this place of, okay, well, this is my focus. I'm staying in the moment. And that moment is running around this track in my case. Anything else I'll deal with when I turn that switch off. So, but also accepting that it might still creep in. And if it's a big thing or if it's what, of course it is, that's life. It it has an impact. So I think that acceptance is a huge piece around then moving forward and actually performing. And I think that links to the effort piece, right? Mm. I might only have 60%, 70 80% because I'm worried about that. Uh, external factor that's okay Mm. because it might be a really big thing it might be family illness whatever it might be that's that's something that's going to probably stay in my head right but I'm going to give all that I can in that moment Mm. turn that switch on now this is about effort brilliant cool so that's what I'd do that's great thank you so much for that Jack really helpful Really, really helpful. Thank you so much for joining us today on the coaching class. It's been an absolute joy to talk to you and, um, yeah, and just learn from you. You've said so many really powerful insights and learning, and I, yeah, really appreciate it and really appreciate how honest you've been in in sharing it as well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Yeah, thanks, Jan. Thank you so much. And all the best as well at Champion and good luck with it all. So we are coming to the end of today's episode where we have been honoured to be joined by double Olympian Jack Green discussing caring for yourself and prioritising well-being when striving for high performance. Our tips and recommendations as given to us by Jack himself today are as follows. So the first one is really think about focusing on your effort and enabling that to drive consistency for you every day. So I think Jack really wanted to stress the point that actually it's absolutely perfectly fine to focus on effort and how you're trying and how you're showing up every day. It doesn't matter whether you've got 60% in the tank, 80%, 100 or even less than. Just be really comfortable with what you can do on that given day. And that will really help you to build up some really great habits. Number two is role model the actions and behaviours to really help you and those around you to grow an environment that is supportive of well-being and really acknowledges it as being critical to performance. And then the third tip from Jack is really thinking about the circle that you want to build around you. So really think about who is important and what is important and who is going to help you to um, align to those values, because that's the circle that you want to surround yourself with. That will give you the right level of support. It will be about those that really, truly care for you, love you and have your best interests at heart. And just forget everybody else. We all know that's challenging. That's hard, but it's so important to do. And we have quoted Jack because we love it so much, which is well-being is performance. I think he nailed it. He did. I think he absolutely nailed it. So 
in this particular episode, we did speak with Jack about a mutual connection we have, which is Rob Stevenson, who is the founder of FormScore and the Inside Out Leaderboard. And we spoke with Rob in episode two, uh, episode nine, sorry, in season two. I'll get that the right way around. So episode nine in season two, we spoke to Rob about well-being and mental health and his experiences of both. So if that's of interest to you having listened to today, go and check that out. Now, don't worry if you can't remember all of the tips that Jack shared and that we've just um, posted up on our whiteboard. We will share those on our Instagram page this week, which is at The Coaching Cast. And you will also be able to find those top tips on our website at thecoachingcast.co.uk. We hope you enjoyed today's episode with Jack and have some new ideas to take away and try for yourselves. If you have any questions, thoughts or feedback, we honestly love hearing from you. And you can contact us on email at hello at thecoachingcast.co.uk, on Instagram at thecoachingcast, or even on our brand new website, thecoachingcast.co.uk, where you can also sign up for updates and exclusive content. We really appreciate you listening to the coaching cast and all the support that you give us. Therefore, if you really like what you have heard and continue to hear, we would really love your support to grow the podcast. So please, please do us a favor and follow us on Instagram. Leave us a review on the Apple podcast app and subscribe to future episodes wherever you listen. Don't forget, you can also watch each of these episodes on our YouTube channel by searching for The Coaching Cast, which you can also subscribe to to get notified of new episodes when they're released. Next week is our season four finale episode. How are we here? Oh my goodness me, how are we here already? It's gone so fast. It's gone Um, so fast, yeah. So quick, absolutely. But we would love to know, CBBs, what you would like to hear from us in our final episode. So is that more bullshit bingos, more workplace shames, any episode topics revisited, or what our favourite moments have been of season four? Please let us know, and we would love for you to get involved. Please send us your thoughts either to hello at thecoachingcast.co.uk on email, or you can DM us on Instagram. We both love music and we use it to motivate and energize us. So for every episode, we like to finish each one with our personal song recommendation, giving you some extra positivity, energy, inspiration to launch into your next meeting. So it's my choice this week and I've chosen Don't Delete the Kisses by Wolf Alice. I love this one. Thanks so much, CBBs, for listening. Have a great week. And remember, you've got this. (laughs) 